Section 1 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rood. Section 1. The Archiepiscopate of Thomas Becket, A.D. 1162 to 1170, by John Lingard, Part 1. Henry II, son of Empress Matilda of Germany, by her second husband, Geoffrey of Anjou, ascended the throne of England upon the death of his uncle Stephen, usurper, and was the first king of that Plantagenet line which ruled England for over three centuries. Henry was crowned at Westminster on December 19, 1154, by Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury. Theobald, by his authority and vigilance, had maintained the public tranquillity after the death of Stephen, and by his counsels of conciliation and peace and other services, had earned the gratitude of the monarch. When age compelled Theobald to retire from the counsels of his sovereign, he recommended Henry to accept as minister his archdeacon, Thomas Becket. Becket was the son of Gilbert Becket, a prominent citizen of London. The boy's mother, according to an interesting tradition, had been the daughter of a Saracen emir who had made Gilbert a captive in Jerusalem after the First Crusade. The daughter helped Gilbert to escape, and later, for love of him, followed on an eastern ship bound for the English metropolis, although she knew no other words of the English language than London and Gilbert. Wandering desolately through the streets and markets, with these words on her lips, she was recognized by a servant who had shared his master's captivity. He hastened to tell Gilbert, who at once sought for, sheltered her, and, shortly afterward, made her his wife. Their son Thomas was educated at the Abbey of Merton, and in the schools of London, Oxford, and Paris. When his father died, Archbishop Theobald took the youth into his family. He studied civil and canon law on the continent, attending, among others, the lectures of Gratian at Bologna. His accomplishments and talents were fully recognized on his return to England, and preferments followed rapidly until he became Archdeacon of Canterbury, a dignity with the rank of baron, next to that of bishop and abbot. He became confidential adviser to the primate, as his representative twice visited Rome, and recommended to the notice of King Henry, was appointed chancellor, preceptor of the young prince, depositary of the royal favor, and received several valuable sinecures. He assumed great splendor and magnificence in his retinue. He attended Henry on his expedition to France, and his chivalric exploits in Normandy at the head of seven hundred knights, twelve hundred cavalry, and four thousand infantry, were more befitting the career of a military adventurer than that of a churchman. Archbishop Theobald died in 1161, and left at the royal disposal the highest dignity of the English church. The favor enjoyed by Chancellor Thomas Becket, and the situation which he filled, pointed him out as the person most likely to succeed Theobald. By the courtiers he was already called the future archbishop, and when the report was mentioned to him, he ambiguously replied that he was acquainted with four poor priests far better qualified for that dignity than himself. But Henry, whatever were his intentions, is believed to have kept them locked up within his own breast. During the vacancy, the revenues of the see were paid into his exchequer, nor was he anxious to deprive himself of so valuable an income by a precipitous election. At the end of thirteen months, A.D. 1162, he sent for the Chancellor at Falsay, bade him prepare for a voyage to England, and added that within a few days he would be Archbishop of Canterbury. 
Beckett, looking with a smile of irony on his dress, replied that he had not much the appearance of an archbishop, and if the king were serious, he must beg permission to decline the preferment, because it would be impossible for him to perform the duties of the situation, and at the same time retain the favor of his benefactor. But Henry was inflexible. The legate Henry of Pisa added his entreaties, and Becket, though he already saw the storm gathering in which he afterward perished, was induced, against his own judgment, to acquiesce. He sailed to England, May 30th, the prelates and a deputation of the monks of Canterbury assembled in the king's chapel at Westminster. Every vote was given in his favor. The applause of the nobility testified their satisfaction, and Prince Henry, in the name of his father, gave the royal assent. Becket was ordained priest by the Bishop of Rochester, and the next day, having been declared free from all secular obligations, he was consecrated by Henry of Winchester. It was a most pompous ceremony for all the nobility of England to gratify the king, attended in honor of his favorite. That the known intentions of Henry must have influenced the electors, there can be little doubt. But it appears that throughout the whole business every necessary form was fully observed. Gilbert Forloy, Bishop of Hereford, prelate of rigid morals and much canonical learning, alone observed jeeringly that the king had at last wrought a miracle, for he had changed a soldier into a priest a layman into an archbishop the sarcasm was noted at the time as a sally of disappointed ambition that becket had still to learn the self-denying virtues of the clerical character is plain from his own confession that his conduct had always defied the reproach of immorality was confidently asserted by his friends and is equivalently acknowledged by the silence of his enemies the ostentatious parade and worldly pursuits of the chancellor were instantly renounced by the archbishop who, in the fervor of his conversion, prescribed to himself, as a punishment for the luxury and vanity of his former life, a daily course of secret mortification. His conscience was now marked by the strictest attention to the decency of his station. To the train of knights and noblemen who had been accustomed to wait on him, succeeded a few companions selected from the most virtuous and learned of his clergy. His diet was abstemious, his charities were abundant, his time was divided into certain portions allotted to prayer and study and the episcopal functions these he found it difficult to unite with those of the chancellor and therefore as at his consecration he had been declared free from all secular engagements he resigned that office into the hands of the king this total change of conduct has been viewed with admiration or censure according to the candor or prejudices of the beholders by his contemporaries it was universally attributed to a conscientious sense of duty modern writers have frequently described it as a mere affectation of piety under which he sought to conceal projects of immeasurable ambition but how came this hypocrisy if it existed to elude during a long and bitter contest the keen eyes of his adversaries a more certain path would have surely offered itself to ambition by continuing to flatter the king's wishes and by uniting himself the offices of chancellor and archbishop he might in all probability have ruled without control both in church and state for more than twelve months the primate appeared to enjoy his wonted ascendancy in the royal favor but during his absence the warmth of henry's affection insensibly evaporated the sycophants of the court who observed the change industriously misrepresented the actions of the archbishop and declaimed in exaggerated terms against the loftiness of his views the superiority of his talents and the decision of his character such hints made a deep impression on the suspicious and irritable mind of the king who now began to pursue his late favorite with a hatred as vehement as had been the friendship with which he had formerly honored him 
Amidst a number of discordant statements, it is difficult to fix on the original ground of the dissension between them, whether it were the archbishop's resignation of the chancellorship, or his resumption of the lands alienated from his see, or his attempt to reform the clergyman who attended the court, or his opposition to the revival of the odious tax known by the name of the Danegelt. But that which brought them into immediate collision was the controversy respecting the jurisdiction of the ecclesiastical courts. A rapid view of the origin and progress of these courts, and of their authority in civil and criminal cases, may not prove uninteresting to the reader. From the commencement of Christianity, its professors had been exhorted to withdraw their differences from the cognizance of profane tribunals, and to submit them to the paternal authority of their bishops, who, by the nature of their office, were bound to heal the wounds of dissension, and by the sacredness of their character, were removed beyond the suspicion of partiality or prejudice. Though an honorable, it was a distracting servitude, from which the more pious would gladly have been relieved, but the advantages of the system recommended it to the approbation of the Christian emperors. Constantine and his successors appointed the bishops the general arbiters within their respective dioceses, and the officers of justice were compelled to execute their decisions without either delay or appeal. At first, to authorize the interference of the spiritual judge, the previous consent of both the plaintiff and the defendant was requisite, but Theodosius left it to the option of the parties, either of whom was indulged with the liberty of carrying the cause in the first instance into the bishop's court, or even of removing it thither at any stage of the pleadings before the civil magistrate. Charlemagne inserted this constitution of Theodosius in his code, and ordered it to be invariably observed among all the nations which acknowledged his authority. If by the imperial law the laity were permitted, by the canon law the clergy were compelled to accept the bishop as the judge of civil controversies. It did not become them to quit the spiritual duties of their profession, and entangle themselves in the intricacies of law proceedings. The principle was fully admitted by the Emperor Justinian, who decided that in cases in which only one of the parties was a clergyman, the cause must be submitted to the decision of the bishop. This valuable privilege, to which the teachers of the northern nations had been accustomed under their own princes, they naturally established among their converts, and it was soon confirmed to the clergy by the civil power in every Christian country. Constantine had thought that the irregularities of an order of men devoted to the offices of religion should be veiled from the scrutinizing eye of the people. With this view he granted to each bishop, if he were accused of violating the law, the liberty of being tried by his colleagues, and moreover invested him with a criminal jurisdiction over his own clergy. Whether his authority was confined to lesser offenses, or extended to capital crimes, is a subject of controversy. There are many edicts which, without any limitation, reserve the correction of the clergy to the discretion of the bishop. But in the novels of Justinian, a distinction is drawn between ecclesiastical and civil transgressions. With the former, the emperor acknowledges that the civil power has no concern. The latter are cognizable by the civil judge. Yet, before his sentence can be executed, the convict must be degraded by his ecclesiastical superior, or, if the superior refuse, the whole affair must be referred to the consideration of the sovereign. That this regulation prevailed among the Western nations, after their separation from the empire, is proved by the canons of several councils, but the distinction laid down by Justinian was insensibly abolished, and whatever might be the nature of the offence with which the clergyman was charged, he was, in the first instance at least, amenable to none but an ecclesiastical tribunal. It was thus that on the continent the spiritual courts were first established, and their authority was afterwards enlarged. But among the Anglo-Saxons, the limits of the two judicatures 
were intermixed and undefined when the imperial government ceased in other countries the natives preserved many of its institutions which the conquerors incorporated with their own laws but our barbarian ancestors eradicated every prior establishment and transplanted the manners of the wilds of germany into the new solitude which they had made after their conversion they associated the heads of the clergy with their nobles and both equally exercised the functions of civil magistrates it is plain that the bishop was the sole judge of the clergy in criminal cases that he alone decided their differences and that to him appertained the cognizance of certain offences against the rights of the church and the sanctions of religion but as it was his duty to sit with the sheriff in the court of the county his ecclesiastical became blended with his secular jurisdiction and in many cases which in other countries had been reserved to the spiritual judge were decided in england before a mixed tribunal this disposition continued in force till the norman conquest when as the reader must have formerly noticed the two judicatures were completely separated by the new sovereign and in every diocese courts christian that is of the bishop and his archdeacons were established after the model and with the authority of similar courts in all other parts of the western church the tribunals created by this arrangement were bound in the terms of the original charter to be guided in their proceedings by the episcopal laws a system of ecclesiastical jurisprudence composed of the canons of councils the decrees of the popes and maxims of the more ancient fathers this like all other codes of law had in the course of centuries received numerous additions new cases perpetually occurred new decisions were given and new compilations were made and published the two which at the time of the conquest prevailed in the spiritual courts of france and which were sanctioned by the charter of william in england were collected under the name of isidore and that of bouchard bishop of worms about the end of the century appeared a new code from the pen of ivo bishop of chartres whose acquaintance with the civil law of rome enabled him to give to his work a superiority over the compilations of his predecessors yet the knowledge of ivo must have been confined to theodosian code the institutes and mutilated extracts from the pandex of justinian but when amalfi was taken by the pisans in eleven thirty seven an entire copy of the last work was discovered and its publication immediately attracted and almost monopolized the attention of the learned among the students and admirers of the pandex was gratian a monk of bologna who conceived the idea of compiling a digest of the canon law on the model of that favourite work and soon afterwards having incorporated with his own labours the collections of former writers he gave his decretum to the public in eleven fifty one from that moment the two codes the civil and canon laws were deemed the principal repositories of legal knowledge and the study of each was supposed necessary to throw light on the other roger the bachelor a monk of breck had already read lectures on the sister sciences in england but he was advanced to the government of his abbey and the english scholars immediately after the publication of the decretum crowded to the more renowned professors in the city of bologna after their return they practised in the episcopal courts their respective merits were easily appreciated and the proficiency of the more eminent was rewarded with an ample harvest of wealth and preferment this circumstance gave to the spiritual a marked superiority over the secular courts the proceedings in the former were guided by fixed and invariable principles the result of the wisdom of the ages the latter were compelled to follow a system of jurisprudence confused and uncertain partly of anglo-saxon partly of norman origin and depending on precedents of which some were furnished by memory others had been transmitted by tradition the clerical judges were men of talents and education the uniformity and equity of their decisions were preferred to the caprice and violence which seemed to sway the royal and baronial judiciaries 
and by degrees every cause which legal ingenuity could connect with the provisions of the canons whether it regarded tithes or advowsons or public scandal or marriage or testaments or perjury or breach of contract was drawn before the ecclesiastical tribunals a spirit of rivalry arose between the two judicatures which quickly ripened into open hostility on the one side were ranged the bishops and chief dignitaries of the church on the other the king and barons both equally interested in the quarrel because both were accustomed to receive the principal share of the fees fines and forfeitures in their respective courts archbishop theobald had seen the approach and trembled for the issue of the contest and from his deathbed he wrote to henry recommending to his protection the liberties of the church and putting him on his guard against the machinations of its enemies the contest at last commenced and the first attack was made with great judgment against that quarter in which the spiritual courts were most defenceless their criminal jurisdiction the canons had excluded clergymen from judgments of blood and the severest punishments which they could inflict were flagellation fine imprisonment and degradation it was contended that such punishments were inadequate to the suppression of the more enormous offences and that they encouraged the perpetration of crime by ensuring a species of impunity to the perpetrator as every individual who had been admitted to the tonsure whether he afterward received holy orders or not was entitled to the clerical privileges we may concede that there were in these turbulent times many criminals among the clergy but if it were ever said that they had committed more than a hundred homicides within the last ten years we may qualify our belief of the assertion by recollecting the warmth of the two parties and the exaggeration to which contests naturally give birth in the time of theobald philip de broy a canon of bedford had been arraigned before his bishop convicted of manslaughter and condemned to make pecuniary compensation to the relations of the deceased long afterward fitzpeter the itinerant judiciary alluding to the same case called him a murderer in the open court at dunstable a violent altercation ensued and the irritation of philip drew from him expressions of insult and contempt the report was carried to the king who deemed himself injured in the person of his officer and ordered de broy to be indicted for this new offence in the spiritual court he was tried and condemned to be publicly whipped to be deprived of the fruits of his benefice and to be suspended from his functions during two years it was hoped that the severity of the sentence would mitigate the king's anger but henry was implacable he swore by God's eyes that they had favored de Broy on account of his clerical character, and required the bishops to make oath that they had done justice between himself and the prisoner. In this temper of mind he summoned them to Westminster, and required their consent that for the future, whenever a clergyman had been degraded for a public crime by the sentence of a spiritual judge, he should be immediately delivered into the custody of a lay officer to be punished by the sentence of a lay tribunal to this the bishops as guardians of the rights of the church objected the proposal they observed went to place the english clergy on a worse footing than their brethren in any other christian country it was repugnant to those liberties which the king had sworn to preserve at his coronation and it violated the first principle of law by requiring that the same individual should be tried twice and punished twice for one and the same offence henry who had probably anticipated the answer immediately quitted the subject and inquired whether they would promise to observe the ancient customs of the realm the question was captious as neither the number nor the tendency of these customs had been defined and the archbishop with equal policy replied that he would observe them saving his order the clause was admitted when the clergy swore fealty to the sovereign why should it be rejected when they only promised the observance of customs 
the king put the question separately to all the prelates and with the exception of the bishop of chichester received from each the same answer his eyes flashed with indignation they were leagued he said in a conspiracy against him and in a burst of fury he rushed out of the apartment the next morning the primate received an order to surrender the honour of eye and the castle of berkhamsted the king had departed by break of day the original point of dispute had now merged in a more important controversy for it was evident that under the name of the customs was mediated an attack not on one but on most of the clerical immunities of the duty of the prelates to oppose this innovation no clergyman at that period entertained a doubt but to determine how far that opposition might safely be carried was a subject of uncertain discussion the archbishop of york who had been gained by the king proposed to yield for the present and to resume the contest under more favourable auspices the undaunted spirit of becket spurned the temporising policy of his former rival and urged the necessity of unanimous and persevering resistance every expedient was employed to subdue his resolution and at length wearied out by the representations of his friends and the threats of his enemies the pretended advice of the pontiff and the assurance that henry would be content with the mere honour of victory he waited on the king at woodstock and offered to make the promise and omit the obnoxious clause he was graciously received and to bring the matter to an issue a great council was summoned to meet at clarendon after the christmas holidays in this assembly january twenty fifth eleven sixty four john of oxford one of the royal chaplains was appointed president by the king who immediately called on the bishops to fulfil their promise his angry manner and threatening tone revived the suspicions of the primate who ventured to express a wish that the saving clause might still be admitted at this request the indignation of the king was extreme he threatened becket with exile or death the door of the next apartment was thrown open and discovered a body of knights with their garments tucked up and their swords drawn the nobles and the prelates besought the archbishop to relent and two knights templar on their knees conjured him to prevent by his acquiescence the massacre of all the bishops which otherwise most certainly ensue sacrificing his own judgment to their entreaties rather than their arguments he promised in the word of truth to observe the customs the reader will probably feel some surprise to learn that they were yet unknown but a committee of inquiry was appointed and the next day richard de lucy and joycelyn de Bellot exhibited the sixteen constitutions of clarendon three copies were made each of which was subscribed by the king the prelates and thirty-seven barons henry then demanded the bishops should affix their seals after what had passed it was a trifle worth neither the asking nor the refusing the primate replied that he had performed all that he had promised and that he would do nothing more his conduct on this trying occasion has been severely condemned for its duplicity to me he appears more deserving of pity than censure his was not the tergiversation of one who seeks to effect his object by fraud and deception it was rather the hesitation of a mind oscillating between the decision of his own judgment and the opinions and apprehensions of others his conviction seems to have remained unchanged he yielded to avoid the charge of having by his obstinacy drawn destruction on the heads of his fellow-bishops after the vehemence with which the recognition of the customs was urged and the importance which has been attached to them by modern writers the reader will naturally expect some account of the constitutions of clarendon i shall therefore mention the principle one it was enacted that the custody of every vacant archbishopric bishopric abbey and priory of royal foundation ought to be given and its revenues paid to the king and that the election of a new incumbent 
ought to be made in consequence of the king's writ by the chief clergy of the church assembled in the king's chapel with the assent of the king and with the advice of such prelates as the king may call to his assistance the custom recited in the first part of this constitution would not claim higher antiquity than the reign of william rufus by whom it was introduced it had moreover been renounced after his death by all his successors by henry i by stephen and lastly by the present king himself on what plea therefore it could now be confirmed as ancient custom it is difficult to comprehend two by the second and seventh articles it was provided that in almost every suit civil or criminal in which each party or either party was a clergyman the proceeding should commence before the king's justices who should determine whether the cause ought to be tried in a secular or episcopal courts and that in the latter case a civil officer should be present to report the proceedings and the defendant if he were convicted in a criminal action should lose his benefit of clergy this however it might be called for by the exigencies of the times ought not to have been termed an ancient custom it was most certainly an innovation it overturned the law as it had invariably stood from the days of the conqueror and did not restore the judicial process of the anglo-saxon dynasty three it was ordered that no tenant-in-chief of the king no officer of his household or of his demands should be excommunicated or his lands put under an interdict until application had been made to the king or in his absence to the grand judiciary who ought to take care that what belongs to the king's courts shall there be determined and what belongs to the ecclesiastical courts shall be determined in them sentences of excommunication had been greatly multiplied and abused during the middle ages they were the principal weapons with which the clergy sought to protect themselves and their property from the cruelty and rapacity of the banditti in the service of the barons they were feared by the most powerful and on principles because at the same time that they excluded the culprit from the offices of religion they also cut him off from the intercourse of society men were compelled to avoid the company of the excommunicated unless they were willing to participate in his punishment hence much ingenuity was displayed in the discovery of expedients to restrain the exercise of this power and it was contended that no tenant of the crown ought to be excommunicated without the king's permission because it deprived the sovereign of the personal services which he had a right to demand of his vassal this custom had been introduced by the conqueror and though the clergy constantly reclaimed had often been enforced by his successors for the next was also a custom deriving its origin from the conquest that no archbishop bishop or dignified clergyman should lawfully go beyond the sea without the king's permission its object was to prevent complaints at the papal court to the prejudice of the sovereign five it was enacted that appeals should proceed regularly from the archdeacon to the bishop and from the bishop to the archbishop if the archbishop failed to do justice the cause ought to be carried before the king that by his precept the suit might be terminated in the archbishop's court so as not to proceed further without the king's consent henry i had endeavored to prevent appeals from being carried before the pope and it was supposed that the same was the object of the present constitution the king however thought proper to deny it according to the explanation which he gave it prohibited clergymen from appealing to the pope in civil causes only when they might obtain justice in the royal courts the remaining articles are of minor importance they confine pleas of debt and disputes respecting advowsons to the cognizance of the king's justices declare that clergymen who hold lands of the crown hold by barony and are bound to the same services as the lay barons and forbids the bishops to admit to orders 
the sons of Elaine's, without the license of their respective lords. End of section one. Recording by Olivia.